Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And we especially love bringing you stories about family businesses. And today we bring you one with a long history that begins with a fruit cart in 1859. Here is Alex Castle the master distiller at Old Dominic Distillery, to tell us the history of this Memphis family business. So one of the best things to me about working for Old Dominic and Decanale and Company is the history of it. That history dates back to 1866 and it is very tangible history. That whole family held on to so many documents and ledger books and letters. I don't know what they were thinking when they held on to it all, but I know we're, we're very happy that it's there now. The family history isn't just some story that's been passed down by word of mouth. It is a history that is very, very real uh, and that we can show to everyone just how authentic that story is and to be able to be a part of such an authentic story um, and hopefully you know be a part of its its history eventually is just it's very rewarding so our founder Domenico Canale uh, was an Italian immigrant and he came over to the States in 1859 landed in New Orleans and decided to take a riverboat up to Memphis. He already had family here, his uncle had a business already. He decided to work for his uncle. That building is literally about 100 yards from the uh, current distillery. Worked for him for a couple years and decided to start his own company in 1866, at which time he founded Deaconale and Company. Started off as a modest little fruit cart and he would just go up and down what is now Front Street selling fruit. Over the years, that grew, became a much bigger distribution company, started distributing beer because he had refrigerated trucks, and decided in the midst of all of that to found Old Dominic Whiskey. He did not distill his own product, but he did buy aged product barrels from other states. So we have records of barrels from Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana, and he would bring them down on the railroads and uh, blend them here under the label of Old Dominic. It was actually one of the biggest whiskey brands in the southern region during that time. And of course, Prohibition hit, and so Old Dominic Whiskey had to stop being produced. Fortunately, the other parts of the company continued on, so the fruit distribution, the beer distribution, all of that continued on through Prohibition. And sadly, Dominico did not see the repeal of Prohibition. He actually died just a few days before it was repealed. Deaconale and Company continued on, just without the whiskey. Bring it up to, I guess it was the late 90s, they actually sold off the food distribution, but still maintained the beer distribution that they had. And so they were the Anheuser-Busch distributor in Memphis. And then in 2010, I believe it was, they actually sold that off as well. 
And so they kind of had lost all of their Memphis foothold. They had other businesses, other investments, just nothing actually in Memphis. And so in 2013, when they found a bottle of Dominic Toddy, basically they found this bottle full, still wax sealed. And they decided to crack it open. I believe one of them actually tasted the liquid, <laughs> but had that liquid analyzed. They sent it to California to see if we could figure out what actually was in that product. Because with all of the documents that the family held on to, they never held on to the recipe for this product. Go figure. And so with the help of a lab out in California, they learned the different components that were present in that bottle couldn't figure out the exact ratios or anything like that, so no specific recipe, but they were able to figure out what was in it. And then from there, we essentially reverse engineered it. And so today's president, Chris Canale Jr., wanted to see the company get back to Memphis, wanted more than just their headquarters to be here. He decided, this seems like a cool idea. Someone said, well, why don't you sell the brand? He said, no. This is how we get back to Memphis. And so he and his cousin, Alex Canale, decided to open up what is now Old Dominic Distillery. That construction project officially started in 2015. And that was the same year that they decided to bring on a head distiller. And I was lucky enough to get a message on LinkedIn. I had nothing better to do. I said, sure, I'll come down for an interview and ended up deciding to move to Memphis um, that same year. And so about a year of construction and we were actually ready to produce the first whiskey, not just out of Old Dominic, but the first whiskey produced in Memphis ever. There were no distilleries here even before Prohibition. Um, so December of 2016 was kind of a, a big year for Old Dominic and for Memphis. And then flash forward a couple months, May of 2017, and we were actually finished with all of construction and open to the public um, for our first tours at the beginning of May. Um, and since then, we have added multiple products. We now have two vodkas. We have our Memphis toddy. We have a gin that's about to come out. And we also have our Hewling Station bourbon and even the Hewling Station line. We're about to release even more products under it. So it's been a very, very busy two, two and a half years. And again, you're listening to Alex Castle, and she's the head distiller at Old Dominic Distillery. What a thing to do and what a way to honor a family heritage. And what a way to honor a city by creating new jobs. And Alex was the first female master distiller in the state of Tennessee at the first whiskey distillery ever in Memphis. Here's Alex to tell us her story. So I am originally from Kentucky. I grew up in a small town called Burlington. It's about 12 miles south of Cincinnati, Ohio. It was definitely a type A, so when I got to high school, fell in love with maths and sciences and knew I wanted to do something with them. And I was talking to my mom, trying to figure out, you know, what could I do with my life? Because at 15, you need to know what you're gonna do with the rest of your life. And uh, she had been reading some articles and came across chemical engineering. I was like, that sounds perfect, but I can't teach, so what do you do with that? 
And uh, my mom, who doesn't drink, said, you can make beer and be a brewmaster, or you can be a master distiller and make bourbon. So that's perfect. That's exactly what I want to do. Truthfully, I have no idea why it sounded interesting, because I was one of those people in high school who did not drink. And like I said, my mom didn't drink. We didn't have bourbon in the house. Up to that point, my only experience with bourbon was my parents taking me to Maker's Mark when I was about five or six years old, and I hated it. Absolutely hated it. I remember my dad sticking his finger in the fermenter and eating it, and I thought I was going to throw up. It just was so gross to me. I didn't like the smell of that room. And then I can't remember if it was the start of the tour or the end of the tour, but they were handing out fudge. I'm a kid. I absolutely want some fudge. No one told me it was bourbon fudge. That does not taste like fudge. It was horrible. So that being my only experience with bourbon, I really have no idea why I ended up in this industry. But when I was 15 or 16, that just, it sounded so perfect. And being from Kentucky, you know, it was a part of my heritage, even if we weren't involved in it. And so I, that's, I went to the University of Kentucky to study chemical engineering and was fortunate enough to get a co-op while I was in school with a small company, not so small now, but a small company in Lexington called Alltech. And at the time they did animal nutrition supplements and had a brewery. And I thought, that's perfect, because I thought I wanted to do beer. Well, while I was there, they sneakily added two pot stills into the brewery and had no one to run them or clean them for that matter. And so my boss sent me and one other person from the engineering office to clean them because they had come all the way from Scotland. So they had a lot of dirt on them from the travel. And uh, shortly after that is when he asked me if I wanted to observe a distillation. So not just polish the stills, but you can actually help run them. And instead of observing, I actually got to run the distillation that day. My boss forgot that he had to take his kids to the dentist that day. And so I show up and he says that and I think, oh man, now I have to go to the office. This is going to be boring. And instead, in about five minutes, ran me through the entire process and said, if you have to, just shut it down. I'll be back later. And then left. And so I ran the stills that day. Did not have to shut them down, thankfully. And I guess because I managed to do that that first day, I was cheap labor. They didn't have to hire anyone else, so they just let me do it from that point on. So I filled over the first 100 barrels, I believe it was, of Pierce Lions Reserve. And from that day on, that was all I wanted to do. I just wanted to make whiskey. And so I set off on that path and have been fortunate enough to know people in the industry and get my foot in the door and have stayed in it ever since. So after college, I have, I did one year making laundry detergent because the industry, while it was growing, everyone was still so new, nobody was making money, which meant they couldn't hire anybody. Um, so no one was hiring at the time. But fortunately, one of the guys I used to work with at Alltech remembered that I wanted to be in the industry. And so connected me with his friend who was a recruiter and was hiring for Wild Turkey. And so I managed to get on as a distillery production supervisor at Wild Turkey about a year after I graduated college. 
and worked there for four years. Uh, started off as the number two supervisor. In about a month, that supervisor got shifted to a different department, so I very quickly became the number one supervisor. And so for four years, I was overseeing all of production at Wild Turkey, responsible for third shift and first shift. So the hours for that were spectacular. I woke up at 2 a.m. every day. So <laughs> definitely cut my teeth in a really good way up there. And then it was randomly the beginning of 2015 that I got that message on LinkedIn asking if I knew anyone who would be interested in a startup distillery in Memphis. And I took about two days to think about it and sent my resume in. And my first trip to Memphis was for the interview and I fell in love with the place. I fell in love with the city immediately. Uh, but also fell in love with the company. I, everyone I met during that weekend was absolutely fantastic. And then they actually brought me into the distillery, which at the time was a completely empty building. Um, the stairs were absolutely terrifying, but I went up them in heels. And uh, But seeing the space and seeing how much work was to be done I could see the challenge that it was, and at the time I didn't know I wanted that kind of challenge, but seeing it, having it put right in front of me, I realized that that's exactly what I needed. And so it just, the whole concept of really doing start to finish with this company and with this brand was so thrilling. Creating a new brand and product is incredibly stressful but it was exhilarating. So just the distillery itself, because we do consider the physical space a product for us. You know, I actually got to sit in on interior design meetings. So I got to help pick tile for the bathrooms and light fixtures. And I was amazed at how much I enjoyed that. And then with the products themselves, of course, had to develop the liquid, which was super fun. You know, my nerdy side came out, but I also, got to have input on the bottles themselves, you know, the shapes, the labels, how they looked, everything. I got input on all of it. Um, whereas, you know, where I came from, I had no say in any of that. I would never have say in any of that. Um, and so to be able to put my stamp on every aspect of the product and the brand, it was incredibly rewarding. So yeah, I'm fortunate to have owners who really do um, trust their employees, put faith in their employees. If they hired you to do something, they're going to do everything they can to, to make sure they let you do that job. Um, and like on a personal level, it's great. I actually do get along with them. You know, we're friends. We've gone on trips together. Um, and over the years, I think I've proven myself to them to where they've let me take more and more control. Um, and kind of oversee the day-to-day -day operations of the distillery. Don't let anyone tell you you can't do it. Women engineers aren't really a thing or weren't a thing when I entered college, and female distillers weren't a thing at the time either. Um, so there were a lot of people who were saying that, you know, maybe, maybe go somewhere else, maybe do something else. And I ignored all of them and just pushed through, and now you see female distillers everywhere. You see women opening their own distilleries. It is fantastic. I mean, it's it, seeing women in the industry goes right along with just how much the industry has grown and changed in recent years. Um, you know, it used to be super labor intensive and, you know, rolling around a 500 pound barrel, not the easiest thing. Most women probably don't really want to do that. Um, 
but so many things are now automated that that labor aspect really isn't there. Yes, the working conditions can be very interesting. You know, you're standing in 150 degree temperatures on a regular basis. Women can put up with that just as well as men can, but women actually have better tastes, better sense of taste and better sense of smell. So if anything, we're actually more qualified to be doing this. And so it's, I love going to conferences every year and there are more and more women each year. And it is, it's fantastic to not be the only one at the table anymore. So to see everyone embracing this change in the industry, it's, it's the best time to be a part of it. And great job by Robbie on that piece, finding it and producing the piece. And a special thanks to Alex Castle. That was her voice. And my goodness, she fell in love with math and sciences at the age of 15. We just fell in love with her and listening to her story for about 10 minutes. She didn't know what to do with her life. Her mom said chemical engineer. She didn't know what that meant, but she gave it a shot. And she had never really had much to drink in her life. Actually, didn't drink. But a summer internship at the University of Kentucky at Alltech changed her life. And we talk about that so much here on this show. The idea of young people getting out into the field and learning about their passions and learning skill sets that can, well, open up a life's vocation, as it did here, folks. And her nerdy side and her artistic side both being fulfilled at this distillery right here, just an hour up the road from beautiful Oxford, Mississippi, where we broadcast the city of Memphis, Old Dominic Distillery, their story, Alex Castle's story, here on Our American Story. And we continue with our American stories. And now we bring you the story of someone whom you likely don't know, but will be glad to have met. John Farnham grew up on a ranch in Helena, Montana. And here he is with his story. I was, uh, I was adopted. My mom and dad tried to have children, couldn't get pregnant, went to Catholic Charities, and Catholic Charities helped them get my sister, Janae. Shortly after they got Janae, Catholic Charities called and said, I know that you have Janae. Would you consider taking another baby? We have a young mom coming and we need to find a home. My birth mother, she was 14 when she got pregnant with me. And so my mom and dad said the ultimate that changed my life. They said, yes, we, we would love that. Right after they got me, my parents ended up getting pregnant. And so I have a biological brother to my adoptive parents and a biological sister to my adoptive parents. So it all happened very rapidly. From the time they got Janae till the time that my youngest sister was born, there is only five and a half years difference between the oldest and the youngest child in four kids. So it was like a daycare center all the time at our house. Throw in a cousin or two, some friends, and that's how our life rolled. We always were surrounded by tons of family. Part of that, I think, is also being raised on the ranch. It was such a communal part of our life. Food is very important, so we would have dinners together every single night. My grandfather and grandmother lived on the ranch. My uncle lived on the ranch. Everybody just kind of, the nucleus of our family was the ranch. 
When I was six years old, my dad got diagnosed with a frontal lobe brain tumor, which affects 100% of your executive function. They decide they need to operate on his brain, and they did brain surgery very successfully. However, it changed who he is as a human being. Anytime you have that kind of trauma in your brain, it dramatically shifts who you are. Prior to his brain tumor, he would take all of us kids out camping. He would water ski with us on his shoulders. He would play the piano just by ear. He never had piano lessons and could play anything he heard. He's an incredibly brilliant man. After his brain tumor, uh, that man no longer existed. And so being six, it was really hard for me growing up to understand who our friends remembered as my dad and the stories they would tell about him because they weren't stories that I remembered. The stories that I remembered were much more challenging. They were much more traumatic. It was much more stressful because all of a sudden we went from a two-parent income in this home to just my mom. Not only just my mom, but my mom having to care for all of his children and care for my dad. The dynamic of what she thought she was, her married life was going to look like changed so dramatically. And my dad was only 35 years old when this happened. So his life too changed dramatically. 35 year olds go to work every day. 35 year olds, their network of friends are people that they tend to work with. All of a sudden my dad didn't have that. And so there were some really dark days growing up. And if it weren't for the family and my mom's friends from her work, I don't know how, how we would have done it. I don't know how my mom did it, quite frankly. Um, she is a hero to me. She, I, um, she passed away two years ago, and the, the ultimate the last thing I said to her was a thank you for saying yes. The yes changed my life. And the yes was when Catholic Charities called. So if ever <laughs> I were to get a tattoo, it would be the word yes, because that so is also the way I try to live my life. Be open to opportunities. Be open to what comes your way and say yes. You never know how it's gonna change someone's life or your own. I was a student at the University of Wyoming in Laramie and my grandmother, uh, my dad, my adopted dad's mother had passed away. And I, it, this was in January and I thought, Man, this hurts. Why does this hurt so badly? Because, I mean, she's not my blood. It shouldn't hurt. She's my grandmother, I know, but it's, you know, not my blood. Just thinking, thinking too, you know, too much. And so, at that point, I decided I really wanted to find my birth mother. So I told my mom and my dad, and they're like, anything we can do to help you, we are happy to do. And we've always told you that, and, and we stand by that. So she gave me the lawyer at Catholic Charities who handled my case. I reached out and they said, you know, write a letter to your birth mother. In that letter, you can say whatever you want, but send it to us, we'll send it on to her. So I did that, and I called about a, five days later. Have you heard anything from my mother? No, uh-uh. And this went on. I would call every day, and my ideas of hope, and that I had this other family out there somewhere that was as crazy and wild and fun and dynamic as my adopted family, those ideas and dreams and wishes started dissipating and I started getting a little anxious and a little bit angry because I wasn't hearing back from her and I thought well how, how dare she I just, all I need to know is 
do I have anything to worry about medically? I don't need anything from her. I don't want anything from her. I simply want to know that everything is going to be fine, that I want to know her story. I want her to know I'm, I'm in great hands, that I have a wonderful, loving family. So I asked the paralegal in moments of frustration, I said, what is plan B? Because I'm not satisfied not knowing now. And she said, well, we can go through the Office of Vital Statistics in Montana and track every time that she got married or changed her name or changed her address. We can, we can track her down. And I said, okay, I, that's good to know that there's a plan B. Well, from January to spring break, which was in March, zero word from my birth mother. So I went home for spring break and called Catholic Charities and said, okay, I just arrived at the ranch. I'm in Montana. Let's go and do plan B. I'll be up to your office in 25 minutes. And they said, give me, give me five minutes. I'll call you right back. So they called right back two minutes later. And they said, what do you want to know? We, we have your record. It's fully up to date and you can know anything you want. And I said, I don't want to know anything right now over the phone. Uh, I'm going to come to your office and we're going to sit with my mom and dad and we'll learn about my birth mother together. And we sat there and, and got the basics of my birth mother and she was at the time a student at the University of Utah finishing up her architecture degree. It was finals week for her so timing was, was not ideal. And it wasn't ideal for my adopted family, certainly. Over the course of the next seven days, I was on the phone with my birth mother in my bedroom learning about her, having her learn about my life, and it would be for hours and hours at a time. All the while, my family is outside my bedroom door hearing this, seeing this, witnessing this, knowing that I am busy developing this relationship with the woman who gave me away for adoption and who blessed me to be with this family. I never realized what the optic of that looked like until afterwards. When, when my birth mother she would check in with Catholic Charities on me every single year. Anytime she got married, and there were four of them, four marriages, anytime she moved, phone numbers in those days didn't port with you. Phones always changed when you got a new address. And so she kept my file completely current with every time she moved, every phone number changed, every address. But she would call every single year and check on me. And one time, they slipped at Catholic Charities. When I was 12 years old, when my birth mother called Catholic Charities to check on me, Catholic Charities had not disclosed my name up until this time, and they accidentally said, John is doing fine, he is in school. And so now my birth mother knew that I was John. My adopted family had to be told because they disclosed my name. She didn't know my last name, but she knew my name. And it terrified my parents because that was the first time that they knew that my birth mother was checking in on me every single year. And I didn't realize this until I was an adult and my mom, my adopted mom told me what had happened and how it rocked her world. How she really thought that my birth mother was coming back to get me. And when we come back, we continue with this remarkable story, a love story, no doubt, and very different than most of ours but in many ways the same too. John Farnham's story, here on Our American Stories.
And we're back with Our American Stories and the story of John Farnham, the gay son with a Catholic adoptive mother and a Mormon birth mother. Only in America, folks. And by the way, I love that he said the yes of the adoptive mother changed my life. It's how I live my life. Say yes. A really fascinating guy John Farnham is. Let's continue with his story. You can imagine that knowing the dynamic, it's very easy to think you understand why you were given up for adoption. It's pretty clear to me. She was a young mother, 14-year-old, 15-year-old. She, she I should have been adopted. That thinking was not really her thinking at all of why she gave me up. Her thinking was she didn't feel loved in her own home and she wasn't going to bring a baby into that home. So it was a much more complex decision, a 15-year-old making that kind of a decision. That's pretty profound and really deep thinking. So the scenario of the pregnant teen going away to school is exactly the scenario that my birth mother was under. Sent away to school, in air quotes, to the Florence Crittenden home to have a baby. Out of the eyes of her family, out of the eyes of her family's friends, she was sent away to go have a baby. Yet that didn't stop her parents, my birth grandparents, from coming to Helena when I was born, bringing clothing to take me home in, um, and raise me. And for her to say absolutely not, no. So I, I have such respect for my mom for being strong, sticking to her decision, and doing what was best truly for me. She got pregnant again two years later and was old enough at that point, she was 17, that she kept my half-sister. And so she moved out of the house and she raised her as her daughter. And so when, when I'm back for spring break and I'm getting to know my birth mother in front of my adopted family, they already have this anxiety that I could have been taken from them at any time. It became really clear the night before I left, there were a lot of tears at my house and a lot of tears of fear and really hurt feelings that my sister, I remember Anne saying, what if you like your other sisters more than you like me? What if we never see you again? What if you like this family more than you like us? And it was heartbreaking. It was the most heartbreaking thing I think I've ever done. And I realized at that moment, the gravity of what they had experienced over the course of seven days. And how do I fix this? There's no way to fix it. It's just to continue to love and be loved. Um, I tried my best to fix it. I wrote little love notes on stickies and hid them everywhere. Hid them in food containers, hid them in the remote control batteries, hid them in my mom's purse. I mean, everywhere you could imagine, I hid love notes to my sisters, my brother, my mom and dad to assure them that I was going nowhere. It just wasn't my intent at all, but they didn't know that. They only know what they witnessed, and what they witnessed was an entire week of me on the phone with my mother getting to know her and her getting to know me. So this is March, and I learned from my birth mom that she had not told her family about me. She also never received the letter that was sent. Even to this day, she has never received that letter. So the first thing she had to do was tell my sisters that they have a brother. And 
my sisters, when I met them for the first time, they were like, now we understand. Every spring, mom would go into this deep depression. She was missing you. She knew your birthday. She knows your birthday. You, every spring, we would lose her for a while. She just would slip into this depression. And now we understand why. Well, it was only a week later that I got back to college. My birth mom drove from Salt Lake City, Utah, to Laramie to meet me for the first time. And it was really a moment of anxiety, as you can imagine. The arrangement was I would meet her at the hotel. Well, the day leading up to our meeting, she, she arrived in the evening, it was really stressful. I go to her hotel. The hotel has exterior doors, so there's no interior hallway. I knock on her door, she opens the door, and I'm blown away. Blown away because I had often wondered if I were ever in a room with my birth mother, would I be able to pick her out? Absolutely. I looked at this woman and she hugged me so tight and all I wanted to do was push her away to look at her because I, I was looking in the mirror. I could not believe I could look so much like another human being in my life. It was so amazing to me. We had two entirely different perspectives on that meeting. She was reuniting with a son she has been missing for 24 years. I am meeting an adult, and I cannot believe this adult looks just like me. And so our perspectives were so incongruous and so interesting. It was, it was a fascinating moment. Here's what I remember most about, uh, second most about that moment of meeting her. Um, she had me go down to her car with her to get her handgun out of the vehicle because she travels with a handgun as a single woman. And I thought, oh my Lord. Now, I'm not anti-gun, I, I grew up with guns, but I just thought, how interesting. You know, our guns were to go and get gophers and, you know, recreate. Hers was really for self-protection and I never thought about using a gun in that way until I met my birth mother. It was like this regressive behavior. We did things like she wanted to take me to the zoo. It was short of just tying a balloon onto my wrist and taking me through the zoo. It was just shy of that. And this went on for the whole weekend. And it was really an important, I think, time for me, and obviously an important behavior for her, to have kind of some of those years condensed into some experiences that she didn't get. Well, as you can imagine, there is a lot of tears, a lot of apologizing, a lot of I'm sorry, and, and I, I can't accept her apology. She gave me an incredible life because it could have gone the other way easily. She opened doors for me that never would have been opened before. She introduced me and gave me the opportunity to be introduced to an incredibly loving family. I want to share with you a Thanksgiving that I had probably about five years ago. And we are all sitting around the table, Tracy's children, Tara and Steve, um, my mom, Trina, and Paul and I. And my mom says, let's go around the table and say the things we're most thankful for. And almost every one of them were thankful that we were together for the first time ever as a, at a holiday and that Paul and I came to spend time with them. And I thought this was the most beautiful demonstration of love and of understanding that I had ever seen. We were all in her home, around her table, 
and grateful and loving on one another. It was probably the most special Thanksgiving I've ever had. The turkey got burnt because my mom is not a cook. But when my mom and I were in the kitchen kind of wrapping up the meal, I remember vividly the sounds coming from the living room. And it was all giggles and all love. And it was beautiful. Being adopted, I'm very close to adoption, very close to foster care work, very close to the conditions and the ideas around improving outcomes for kids who are in the foster care system. Um, the idea of adopting an older child is something that is appealing to me. And here is why. If my mom were alive, I would still be calling her for her goulash recipe. I talk to my mom more now that she has passed away than I did even when she was here. Um, kids still need parents. Whether they are 18 or 25 or 48, kids still need parents. And for a foster kid to age out of the system with no parent, it's just, it's hard to imagine. Um, it was a good friend of mine, right after my mom died, and I said, I just have this instinct I want to call her. And she said, don't worry about calling, just talk to her. She's listening, talk to her, just as you're driving or whenever, whenever you want to. And it was true. That's how I talk to her more now that she's passed than when she was alive. I talked to her when I was going with, to pick out the Christmas tree. My mom and dad would always come to Denver. We would go pick our Christmas tree out together. And my mom would sit there and watch me decorate it and, and tell stories and sing Christmas carols. She could still do that. She could still be there to pick out the Christmas tree. I just had to share it with her. I can't imagine what heaven looks like with my mom there and my grandmother and my aunts because our family is wild and crazy. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. God was, is ready for this, but he's got it. He's got them all. And the, it, I bet it's a, a party up there. No, no question. I, I cannot wait to get there because <laughs> it's going to be fun. And that was John Farnham. And what a story. What a beauty. By the way, what a decision is birth mother made. She didn't feel loved in her own home and didn't want to bring up a baby in that home. And John had noted that was profound thinking for a girl because, my goodness, she was all at 14. She was a girl. She wasn't a woman yet. What a sensitive soul John was and that now he thinks deeply about adopting an older child. And, my goodness, there's no greater gift you can give to anybody than to not let a foster kid age out of the system because then they never have a parent, ever. And what a thing. I know I still talk to my dad. 88 years old, I still talk to him. My mom has passed. I still talk to her all the time. And I can't imagine, it's unimaginable, living life without a parent, without that kind of unconditional love. John Farnham's story, by the way, this adopted child is the deputy disruptor at the Mortgage Family Foundation, and he has helped give away $100 million so far. A love story that continues. John Farnham's story here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, 
And from business to history and everything in between, including your story, send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And our next story is pulled straight out of history. And by the way, it's a story that most schools don't teach. And it's about the man who almost single-handedly abolished the slave trade in Great Britain. And we'll get to it in a bit. But all of our history stories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that are beautiful in life and all the things that are good in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. Slavery to this day remains one of the ugliest blots in the long history of humanity. It can be traced back as early as 4000 BC. The man who perhaps more than any other stirred the conscience of the world about this evil was William Wilberforce. His efforts helped bring liberty to untold millions and his persistence and conviction influenced major change in thinking and the history of the world too. Eric Metaxas is the New York Times best-selling author of Bonhoeffer, Martin Luther, and Amazing Grace. His biography, Amazing Grace, William Wilberforce and the Heroic Campaign to End Slavery was the official companion book to the feature film also titled Amazing Grace. We'd like to thank Eric Pataxis for allowing us to share his story with our listeners. Here's Eric with the remarkable story of William Wilberforce. The story of Wilberforce is kind of funny because once you know the story, you're embarrassed you didn't know it before. And that happens to me over and over with the characters I write about that you think, this is so important. How have I lived this long and I've missed this because this is so important? Let's put it this way. He's most famous, if you have heard anything about him, he is the man who, in Parliament, in 1807, had the victory over the slave trade in the British Empire, right? Now, a lot of people, you know, kind of like, what's that? What's the difference between slave trade and slavery or whatever? Well, the slave trade, just to make it clear, it's, it's a really weird thing, right? Because in America, we had slavery here. So you saw it in front of you. But in England, they had a tr- huge slave trade, but they didn't have any slaves in England. What they would do was they would send these ships from the four harbors, or really it was three of their major four harbors, that, and the ships would go down to the west coast of Africa, pick up their human cargo, and then they would take it across to the West Indies. And all the sugar plantations were there. So... They would then take the molasses and whatever back to England. Nobody in England ever saw what was going on. They just knew that their economy's booming or whatever. Most English people didn't know that they're participating in a satanic slave trade. They just knew that the economy's good and we get sugar in our tea and, and that kind of stuff, you know? And so Wilberforce believed that if he ended the slave trade, slavery would go away. So let me just start at the beginning. He was born in 1759 into a family that really was wealthy. They were merchants. But the funny thing when I tell the story, and and I have to say again, I didn't know this either, right? I'm not like a guy who knows a lot of stuff and they say, I think I'll write a book about this. I just knew that this man had led the battle to end the slave trade. So he's a hero. Okay, I'll write a book about him. But when I wrote the book, I discovered all kinds of stuff I didn't know. For example, when he grew up in the middle part of the 1700s, okay, he's born in 1759, England was nominally Christian, okay, officially Christian. 
But do I need to tell you that if you have a booming slave trade, you're not that Christian? There are a lot of countries that are officially Christian that don't behave very Christian, okay? Uh, you could talk about Germany in the 1930s. I wrote about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Germany was officially Lutheran, right? Well, everybody, we're German, we're Lutheran, great. Except they're not living it out. If you don't understand that, you know, hating Jews is not part of God's plan or speaking against Nazis, you know, if you don't get that, how Christian are you, okay? So a lot of people can be Christian in name only or uh, sometimes Christians are, are Christians more than a name only but not nearly where God wants them to be. And so people can all reconcile all kinds of wicked behavior. But in England... At this time, you could really say that they really were Christian in name only. When they said we're Christian, it means we're not Turks, we're not Muslims, uh, we're not atheists, uh, we're not uh, Buddhists, we're not, we're not Jews, we're Christians. Well, they didn't behave as Christians. Now, the irony is that America today is not officially Christian. We're not officially anything. But I would say when you're not officially something, you have the freedom to really be Christian. Because when it's enforced by the government, you just go, well, you know, on my birth certificate, it just says that I'm this, and, and you know, and you don't, you, it, it's not, you don't own it, it's not yours. So everybody in England says, I am a Christian, because Christian, we have the Church of England, and the, the Queen or the King is the defender of the faith, and so we're an officially Christian nation. But something happened in the previous century, in the 1600s, there have been some religious wars, and so the culture of England not that it ever was tremendously Christian, but in the uh, 18th century, they began to retreat from robust faith of any kind, and the pulpits were preaching what you'd call French Enlightenment rationalism, right? French Enlightenment rationalism means we believe in, you know, there's a God up there someplace, but we're not, we don't believe in Jesus and the Bible. So England is officially Christian, but they're not living it out at all. So... Wilberforce is born in the middle of the century into a family that has a, has a good amount of money, but just like all the elites in particular in that century, they looked down on anybody who had serious Christian faith. If you think about the 18th century, you have the Great Awakening because of the preaching of uh, George Whitfield and because of the preaching uh, of the, the, the Wesley brothers, John and Charles Wesley. You, you have this revival, but it's only among the poor mainly. The elites looked down on the poor and they looked down on anybody who had serious Christian faith. In fact, they called them Methodists. They're sort of making fun of the fact that the Wesleys, when they got saved at Oxford University, they, be they became sort of so obsessed with religion and prayer and stuff that they said they're very methodical. So they made fun of them. They called them Methodists. Uh, and of course, they eventually took it as a badge of honor. But the Brits also said, if you're really, you know, serious about God and all that stuff, you're an enthusiast, which is like saying a holy roller, uh, a Bible thumper. The whole culture looked down on it. So the elites were really hostile to any of this Christian faith. And so throughout the culture, you don't have much Christian faith. And when we come back, the story of William Wilberforce with Eric Metaxas here on Our American Story. And we continue with our American stories and the story of William Wilberforce. 
And all of our history stories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where they actually teach history. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Their Constitution 101 course, well, I learned more from that than I did in three years at the University of Virginia School of Law. Their C.S. Lewis course, oh my goodness, another great British theologian and storyteller. And please, if you can, go to hillsdale.edu. You'll love the content. And now let's return to Eric Metaxas and the story of William Wilberforce. The elites were really hostile to any of this Christian faith, and so throughout the culture, you don't have much Christian faith. So Wilberforce grows up in a family just like that. When he is about nine years old, his father dies, and his mother gets very ill. And the grandfather and the mother say, we need to send him to live with this aunt and uncle because she wasn't able to care for him. And so they sent him to live with this very wealthy aunt and uncle. They were so wealthy that, you know, the mother and the grandfather, how could we go wrong sending him to to them? This is going to be, you know, wonderful. Well, what they didn't know is that the aunt and uncle were Methodists, born again, evangelical, whatever you want to call it. In fact, not only that, They were so wealthy, they were practically funding the entire Methodist movement. So they send this little boy off to live with them, and he encounters this loving aunt and uncle, and he comes to faith. He was very intelligent, very sensitive, and he comes to faith. He he comes to love this aunt and uncle with all his heart, and they love him like a son. And John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, he was the slave trader who became a Christian and then became a preacher. He would visit this home, and... Little Wilberforce uh, uh, thought of him like, like a father figure. And so it's this wonderful time. But then the mother and the grandfather, being classic elites of that day, when they discovered this, about two and a half years into this, they were horrified. It's like he'd been kidnapped by a cult. You know, those Christians, they're nuts. So they bring him back home, and they are determined to scrub his soul clean of Methodism. They don't even let him go on Sundays to their dead Anglican church because he might hear the scriptures read. And so they do everything they can. He tries to cling to his faith, this brilliant young man. He sends letters, secret letters via the maid uh, to his aunt and uncle. He's trying to cling to his faith. But by the time he's 16 and goes off to Cambridge University, it's, it's really evaporated. And he's become exactly what they hoped. You know, an intelligent, insouciant man about town, sophisticated, knowing that, you know, the enthusiasts are just uh, way too much. It's not for me. Well, while he is there at Cambridge, he becomes friends with William Pitt the Younger. William Pitt the Elder is one of the great statesmen of that time, right? He was uh, in the House of Lords, but he was a, a great political figure, and he was training his young son, William Pitt the Younger, to be a great statesman, you know, memorizing Latin uh, phrases, you know, at his father's knee and stuff. So Wilberforce, he comes from this merchant background, but he meets William Pitt the Younger, and, and they start going together from Cambridge to London to visit the Houses of Parliament, to sit in the gallery, and to watch the debates on the floor below. And Wilberforce, 18, 19 years old, is mesmerized by what's going on. He thinks, I think I want a life in politics. Now, you know, you have to understand, what was the debate going on at that time in the House of Lords that he was watching? Well, this is about 1776. So this was about the fate of the colonies. I mean, this was historical. And he says, I want to become a politician. 
So he graduates at the same time as his friend William uh, uh, Pitt, the younger, graduates, and they immediately get elected to Parliament, and the two of them rocket up in the ranks of the political order in their early 20s, so that by the time William Pitt, uh, the younger, is 24 years old, he's elected Prime Minister of England. Now, William Pitt is Prime Minister, but his best friend Wilberforce also gets this incredibly powerful position. And they become very powerful figures. They're members of all the top gentlemen's clubs, and their, their pictures are in the papers. That's not true. There's no photography, okay, in 1780. I tricked you. Um, can you imagine, he, all this comes to him, and then one day he decides, because you know the recess from Parliament is months long, he wants to take a long vacation. His mother's health you know, was not so good, so they thought, oh, we need to go to the French and Italian Rivieras for the, for the climate. So this is a trip, can you imagine, to go from England all the way across the continent with you know, uh, horses, with a coach, to the southern part of France. This is a vast journey, okay? So his mother was going to travel in a coach with a cousin, and he was going to travel in a coach with a friend. So he picks a friend, the friend can't come, and then he says, well, I need somebody to, you know, it's going to be very boring. So he stumbles on an old schoolmate who is my favorite character in the book, in the story. His name is Dr. Isaac Milner. And Isaac Milner was a physical giant. I don't know how big he was, but he was everybody just, he was a giant of a man. Now, it becomes funnier when you think Wilberforce was literally five foot two, and at one point during his illness, he weighed 76 pounds. So he picks Milner. Now, Milner was not just famous for being a giant. He was probably literally the smartest man in England at the time. He was, uh, he had the Lucasian chair in, um, is it chemistry? or physics, I forget, at Cambridge, okay? Uh, Isaac Newton, who invented calculus, and, and Stephen Hawking, who just passed away. You know, they have this lifetime appointment. So it's super smart people, smartest people in the world. So that's Isaac Milner, okay? So not only is he super genius, but he also was famous for being a teller of comic stories, funny stories. And so you think, who could possibly be a better companion? And they decide, okay, we're going to go together. We're going we're to take this trip across the continent. This is going to be months, you know, to, to, get, to get there and months to come back. So they go on the journey and they're talking about everything. Wilberforce was a fascinating conversationalist himself and very witty. And uh, they've gone just far enough that they can't turn back. I don't know how far that is, 500 miles, something like that. And the subject of religion comes up. And to Wilberforce's horror, Isaac Milner reveals that he is a Methodist. Can you imagine? You'd be like, oh no, now what do I do? And he kind of tries to crack some jokes to kind of bat it away, but Milner says, well, you know, no, 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 I think, uh, you know, you're, you're above that, uh, Mr. Wilberforce. I think, you know, if you'd like to have a serious conversation, we, we should. So... They have a serious conversation, and I always picture this giant Milner crushing Wilberforce's intellectual objections like walnuts in his big meaty paws, like, you know, and throwing the shells out the window. As the, as the miles go by, he's just one by one. And Wilberforce, to his credit, was intellectually honest, okay? Like a lot of people today would just be like, hey, I don't care. <laughs> Wilberforce thought, if you're making the case and you're right, I'm stuck. And by the time of this trip ending... He knows that he's been wrong, that the Bible is true, that Jesus is his Lord and Savior. There's no way out. 
I'm in. It's true. But when he gets back to London, he's very bummed out because he knows the world in which he has been traveling. He's a member of these five gentlemen's clubs where they stay out drinking and, and, and singing and gambling and joking till four and five in the morning. And that, that whole life, he realized, I can't do that anymore. I probably have to leave politics. What am I going to do? He was not happy. So he goes to visit his old friend, John Newton. Remember I said he, when he was a little boy, he, he'd befriended him. He hadn't seen him in all these years. And I imagine John Newton had been praying for him. Can you imagine that this guy that you knew back then has you know, drifted away from the faith and now he's one of the most powerful people in England. So he goes like Nicodemus secretly to meet John Newton to ask him, what do I do? But he didn't want people to see him going there because he was so famous at this point that if people see him going there, they're going to know something's up. So he goes there secretly and John Newton says to him, I think God would call you to bring him into politics and to let him use you as a top political figure for his purposes in history at this time. Wilberforce, to his credit, accepts this. And he says, even though it's going to be hard, even though I'm going to be mocked by these elites, I believe this is God. And so he decides to stay in politics, but he's going to pray and study the scripture and other books about, Lord, what would you have me do? So two years into his faith, he writes in his journal 20 famous words. I don't remember what they are, but there's 20 of them. Just, just kidding. I, I do. <laughs> so basically, he writes these words in his diary, and these are the 20 words. He says, God Almighty has set before me two great objects, okay? God has set before me. He didn't say, this is my idea. He believes that the Lord has called him to these two great objects of his life, the suppression of the slave trade, which was basically impossible, and if that's not enough, the reformation of manners or morals or culture, which is, you could describe it as, oh, and, and everything else. And my goodness, what storytelling this is indeed. And it's a story that every American should know, frankly, everyone in the world should know, that one man can change the world. When we come back, we'll continue with the remarkable story of William Wilberforce. And my goodness, what a storyteller we have on hand. The great Eric Metaxas, who wrote among other things, Amazing Grace, William Wilberforce, and the heroic campaign to end slavery. We continue with this great story here on Our American Stories. And we continue here with Our American Stories and the story of William Wilberforce. And it's one of the great faith stories in world history. And by the way, we tell the story of British history because periodically what happens across the pond is either happening here or will soon happen here and vice versa. And of course, the abolition movement here in this country in the 19th century was spawned in large part by Christians. And indeed, they were pursuing the same kind of justice that Wilberforce was pursuing. And that, in their estimation, was God's justice. And now let's return to the story, the untold story in too many of our schools and colleges, of William Wilberforce. I don't think I, I, I shared the statistics, but it was such a broken culture that you don't just have this abomination called slavery and the slave trade. You also have 
a lack of Christian worldview evident in everything. Nobody cared for the poor. Imagine living in a world, today we argue about how to care for the poor, not whether. We all know, of course, we're supposed to do something to help people who are struggling. The question is what? Imagine living in a time where everybody says, no, we're not, and we don't even give it a thought. The reason you're poor is because you made bad decisions and tough luck. It's not my problem. And the reason I'm rich is because God likes me and he's blessed me. Imagine having that worldview. That is the opposite of a Christian worldview, is it not? God tells us we are blessed to be a blessing. If God has given you anything, time, money, talent, good looks, doesn't matter what it is. If it's good and he gave it to you, he gave it to you for his purposes. So imagine living in a world where nobody knows that. Living in a world where everybody says, whatever I have that's good, it's for me. So Wilberforce grows up in a world like that. He becomes a Christian, and the first thing he sees through his Christian eyes is the slave trade is evil. Okay, is God calling me to that? Well, two years into this faith, he realizes God is calling me in parliament to be a, a voice in politics for this issue. There had been a lot of serious Christians, Methodists, born-again believers, who knew this was an issue, but they had no political power. They're praying for a figure in parliament. So Wilberforce steps up, says yes. But then the everything else is the brokenness of the culture beyond the horror of the slave trade. There was child labor, little kids working, six, seven years old, in dangerous conditions, 14 hours a day. Imagine that kind of a poverty where there's no rules against that. Alcoholism was utterly rampant in that culture on a level we can't even imagine. Uh, some of you might be familiar with the Hogarth Prince of Gin Alley. I mean, these people just absolutely lost in poverty and misery, dying of young ages of all kinds of diseases and unable to raise their kids. This was absolutely endemic in this culture. 25% of all the women in London who were single were prostitutes. What does that tell you about the men in that culture? The average age of the prostitutes was 16. That's the average age. When Wilberforce becomes a Christian and sees through God's eyes, he sees all this. And he realizes God is calling me to step up, to use my talent, the power he's, he's allowed me to have, my abilities, my networks, friends that I know, to work for God's purposes. So he writes this in his journal. The, the other fact, if you want to know how sick the culture was, Wilberforce said this culture is so far away from God, even though we call ourselves officially Christian. He said he wanted to make goodness fashionable. In other words, it was fashionable, it was the cool thing to be bad, right? We see that in our culture, right? We, what do we call it? We say, well, he's a player, okay? Who was the leading figure in the land in this time, it was the man who was going to be King George IV, okay? The eldest son of King George III was the Prince of Wales, who's going to be the king. He was famous for being immoral. So in that culture, the greatest guy there is who's going to be the king, that's how he behaves. So Wilberforce says, I've got an uphill climb. He says, I want to make goodness fashionable. Not that kind of behavior. I want to make goodness fashionable. I want people to know that doing good is the right thing. So he's facing all of this. He's born again. And the first thing, of course, the, the thing that he's most famous for is this huge battle for the slave trade. And he fights and fights and fights. He fights for 18 years. It's a brutal battle. If you read the book honestly, you realize that if God doesn't call you to the battle, you know, the enemy will just chew you up. You need to know this is God's battle. 
you need to know I'm here to obey, not to win. I play to win, but I ultimately am here to obey God because Jesus obeyed God and he was nailed to a tree. Bonhoeffer obeyed God and he was hanged. It's not about winning. It's about obeying God. If you obey God, you already won. Wilberforce does win, but the battle is unbelievable. He obeys God. He does everything. And in 1807, he gets this grand victory after many years. He also had uh, health issues, ulcerative colitis. And, I mean, he really struggled. But he knew God has called me to this battle. But he also knew God had called him to the battle of the Reformation of manners, of culture, whatever. And he oversaw the transformation of this culture through all kinds of little groups. He basically was able to speak to the elites of the time and that, you know, a, a, a wealthy woman with nothing really to do was suddenly now thinking that, oh, why don't I get together with the other wealthy women and, and, and we can do something for the poor. They began to get this idea in these elite circles that we need to do something for those who can't help themselves. He had a group of friends around him. I call them the Clapham Circle. Sometimes they're called the Clapham Saints or whatever. But one of this group was John Thornton. He was the, the head of the Bank of England. He was one of the wealthiest people in Europe. He decides to use his money for God's purposes. And so he builds a couple of houses so that these people, he invites them, why don't you live, we'll live in a kind of community and we'll pray together in the mornings and we'll, we'll meet together and we'll be part of what God can do in England. It's an amazing story, really, uh, of how many different people got involved. One of my favorite figures, I mentioned Isaac Milner, uh, th there's a, a woman named Hannah Moore and she's one of the great figures of this era. She's a literary figure. She was friends with the famous actors, David Garrick uh, and the, the famous poets and the famous painters, Josh Reynolds, she was part of that world. And she, like Wilberforce, had a heart for God. And, and she's thinking, and how can God use me? And the Lord used her in her giftings. And one of the most amazing things she did was she said, you know, I've been writing all these books and poems and stuff. I need to write literature for poor people who don't know how to live. Stories that help them, like morality stories, to help them think about their lives. And then she founded a Sunday school because the rural poor we're getting zero education. And she said, I'm going to start educating them and educating them in the things of God. So you have all these different characters who have different pieces of this. And they start to fan out through the culture and they start to change things. So you have this huge victory in 1807, but Wilberforce went on to either lead or be a part of innumerable social reforms. Oz Guinness, my dear friend who really introduced me uh, to the life of Wilberforce, considers Wilberforce the greatest social reformer in history. Now, all that he did, he did because of Jesus. Because he understands Jesus changes everything. He does, I don't just get saved and about saving other people. We get saved, but then we're still here. We don't go straight to heaven. What are we supposed to do? We'll save other people. Yeah, yeah, that's part of it. But we're supposed to also serve God in our gifts and, and care for the poor, care for the slaves. If you say, oh, I just want to preach the gospel. I don't want to get involved in politics or whatever. You think, well, you don't care about the slaves rotting in the hold of a slave ship. If you don't care about them, you are missing Jesus and his heart. And what gospel are you going to preach? Uh, and so Bonhoeffer gets that, right? He says, I'm not just going to pray. I'm going to get involved in the plot to overthrow Adolf Hitler because millions of people are being murdered. 
And when we come back, we're going to hear more from this remarkable storyteller. And you're listening to Eric Metaxas tell the story of William Wilberforce. And this should be taught in every school. Of course, it's not. And that's why we tell you the stories that we tell you, because no one else is telling them. When we come back, more of the life of William Wilberforce and Eric Metaxas's book, Amazing Grace, William Wilberforce and the Heroic Campaign to End Slavery, is available online. Get it. And watch the movie Amazing Grace with the family, with friends. It's terrific. This is Our American Stories. Turn to our American stories and the story of William Wilberforce, told by one of America's great storytellers and writers, Eric Metaxas. Let's pick up with Eric where he last left off. So Wilberforce, after the abolition of the slave trade in 1807, he gets involved in all these other things. One of them is abolition itself, because they saw as time passed that the abolition of the slave trade is not ending slavery. And so he gets involved in abolition. Another thing he did, which uh, there's a chapter in my book, he should be famous for this too. Most people don't even know this. He, he considered it, next to the slavery issue, the most important thing he ever did. And this might sound odd at first, but it was to get missionaries into India. Think of this. The British were making tons of money in India. But they were not concerned about the lives of the Indians. They just thought, let's just go there and we'll make our money. And we don't have any responsibilities. Well, Wilberforce says, yes, you do. Wilberforce would read in the paper how in India, when uh, usually a wealthy man dies, he's burned on a funeral pyre. His body is burned on a funeral pyre. And along with his body burned on the funeral pyre, his living widow is burned to death on the funeral pyre. Wilberforce would read this and be outraged and say, we are there. We are, in Eng- we are English people are there in India making tons of money off them. Do we not have a responsibility to help these women and to tell them that we don't care what your customs are? By the way, in England, we have a custom. When you do that to a woman, we hang you to death. You have your customs. We are going to bring our values, our Western Christian values, that you don't murder a woman because her husband died. We're going to bring these values. He said, we need missionaries there. And of course, the business interests, nothing changes. They're making a lot of money. They didn't want missionaries there because they said, if missionaries come here to India, they're going to, they're going to mess up a good thing. We got a good thing going on. There were, there, you know, there were men there that would have, you know, five or six teenage wives hanging out. I don't want missionaries coming here. Wilberforce fought and fought, but by the time he died in 1833, you're on the verge of what's called the Victorian era. The Victorian era is famous for what? Morality. It became what he had prayed for. He made goodness fashionable. So by the time he dies, everybody in England knows if I have something, probably I'm supposed to do something good with it. Now, can you imagine we live in a day today where everybody knows that? Why do we know that? We know that, 
and this is what's incredible to me, is because William Wilberforce and his group of friends managed to import these gospel ideas into the mainstream of the culture. And they did it so successfully that it became part of the warp and woof of Western culture so that anybody in the West today knows slavery's wrong, racism's wrong. If there are people suffering in poverty or this or that, we have some obligation to do something. The social conscience. Can you imagine living in a world with no social conscience? Wilberforce brought the idea of helping the poor and all this into the mainstream. So today, as I said, we argue about how to do it, not whether to do it. He was on his deathbed, by the way, when he received word, this was his last day of consciousness, a young member of parliament in 1833 comes to the bed of Wilberforce to tell him, today in parliament, we have just voted to outlaw slavery, not the slave trade, which was defeated in 1807, but in 1833, to defeat slavery and wipe it out in all of the British Empire. Can you imagine that the Lord gave him this victory on his deathbed an hour, hours before he slips into unconsciousness. His life changed things so dramatically because everybody today has a social conscience. We can't even imagine a world without it. So we don't even think about the guy who kind of made it happen. We're like, what, what are you talking about? That's like the guy who made oxygen happen. It's always been here. Like, I don't even know. I don't even know what you're talking about. We can't imagine it because this happened over 200 years ago or roughly 200 years ago, but it's been part of the West ever since. We know that we're blessed to be a blessing. Every atheist, every agnostic, we all know this stuff. Where did it come from? It came from the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it was not brought into the mainstream of culture until William Wilberforce was called by God to do those things. Before I close, I just want to tell you a couple of things that he did that were part of how he was able to do this. I mentioned that you have to be called Sometimes people are just called to be a good spouse, uh, a good father, a good mother. That's more than enough. It's not about saving the world. Wilberforce did what God called him to do humbly. So that's important. The second thing is that Wilberforce had a humility that he was able to love his enemies. Wilberforce knew that apart from the grace of God, I'm on the other side of this battle. So I can't get all cocky and, you know, morally superior because why am I on the right side of the battle? I, I didn't work my way here. The Lord, by revelation, gave me the gift of seeing what I was blind to before. So he had a humility and a love in the way that he dealt with his opponents that is very powerful. Wilberforce was able to speak to the people on the fence with a grace that a lot of them were able to change their minds because of how he communicated. He had the ability, because of his wit and sarcasm, to wipe the floor with his opponents. When he became a Christian, he no longer did that. Even though he could, he didn't do it. There was a grace to him. Wilberforce also understood that I need to have people around me. For him, it was this Clapham circle. People, brothers and sisters who are with me on the journey, maybe not doing exactly what I'm doing, but encouraging me, praying with me. He would say that it's his friends in Clapham. He never could have done what he did. But then, in a way, the final point is that he was willing to work with his enemies. In other words, there were people in Parliament who were, you know, dissolute swine, okay? People who were womanizers and drunkards and all this kind of stuff. Wilberforce said, I will work with you if we can help end the slave trade. Because I care more about the suffering slaves than I do about my reputation. 
Wilberforce said, I care about the slave. And if I'm going to have to break bread with sinners, oh, incidentally, someone who's a hero of mine, Jesus of Nazareth, broke bread with sinners. So maybe it's okay to break bread with sinners. If you don't care about those slaves, it's very easy to say, I'm not going to work with uh, Charles Fox in Parliament. He's a horribly immoral person. But if you care about the slaves, you care about the people suffering, you say, well, I know that I'm morally no different than Charles Fox. Maybe I can be an influence on him. I will not let him be an influence on me. But if he will work with me on this issue, of course I will work with him. That takes humility. And it also takes perspective that Jesus was reviled by the religious leaders of his day for hanging out with tax collectors who were the scum of the earth and sinners and drunkards and whatever. That's why Wilberforce is such a hero of mine. Not because he accomplished these things, but because he accomplished them by obeying God and by giving us a model in life, in history, a real model. I'm not like, you know, blowing smoke here. This is all true and this is just the, the peaks of the mountains here. But that one life submitted to God can sometimes be just so dramatically effective that it's an inspiration to each of us. And you've been listening to Eric Metaxas, One Life Submitted to God. My goodness, what a difference it can make. And we know this from our story of Martin Luther King. Not Dr. Martin Luther King. The hour we did was on Reverend Martin Luther King. And it was his faith that animated everything he did. And it was the Bible that animated everything he did. And you don't need to be a Christian or a Jew or an atheist or an agnostic not to know that that was the reality of King's life and the impact he had on America in the 20th century. Perhaps no other man had the impact King had. And we thank Eric Metaxas for just a remarkable a piece of writing and storytelling. And Amazing Grace is one heck of a book and one heck of a movie. A great movie for the family to watch. And again, we tell these stories because no one else does. You've got to ask yourself or wonder why schools don't teach this story. That's for you to ponder. There is one school that does, and that's Hillsdale College. And they teach all of the things that are good and beautiful in life. And you've heard me talk about them time and again. But their online courses, folks, go to hillsdale.edu. Their Constitution 101 course, I learned more in that class than I did in three years at the University of Virginia School of Law. It's that good. And it puts you into the time. It makes history come alive. Their C.S. Lewis course about the theologian C.S. Lewis and the man who authored the Screwtape Letters and the Chronicles of Narnia and so much more. That course is worth its weight in gold. Again, go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And my goodness, that just days before he died, that Wilberforce learned that not only had he abolished the slave trade, he had impacted the decision of the British Parliament to abolish slavery in its entirety in all of the British Empire. And the reason we tell this story about this British man is his impact on the American colonies and the American continent, because the impact his life had on Christians in this country is inestimable. And my goodness, the abolition movement, well, we know that it was Christians who drove that in the North, and it was their faith that drove it in the north. And these are stories that need to be told. These are stories we love telling here on Our American Stories. We're blessed to be a blessing, Eric Metaxas said. And by the way, that we are now, all of us, talking about the poor. Faith people are not faith people. All good people today think and talk about how to help the poor. But before Wilberforce, 
This just wasn't common. It was seen poverty as a series of bad choices the poor person made, and that mercy and grace need not be shown. The story of William Wilberforce, an essential part of British history and American history too, as always brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College here on Our American Stories.